This is a Negotiate X podcast, show number 47, part B. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Negotiate X podcast. We are continuing our conversation with Dr. Ken DeClava, who is a practicing psychiatrist and senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. If you haven't already checked out part A of this episode, be sure to do that first. Let's jump in the conversation with Ken. Ken, I wanted two things on what you're kind of sharing around your diplomatic experiences. One is, and maybe this builds off what Nolan just asked you, you, know, you, you talked about having to persuade people to, to do some things they don't want to do, whether that is leave a country, whether it's come back and testify, and you don't want to create that secondary experience. How do you do that from, you know, kind of from your perspective in your field? How do you get people, influence people to do things they just fundamentally do not want to do? You, you have to have immense patience. And usually when we fail at this, it's because we're in too much of a hurry. So sometimes you have to slow it down. And I know Gary Nessner talked about this in his podcast and in his famous book, Stalling for Time. Once the person is talking to you, time is your friend. So you use that to slow things down and get the patient, in, in my case, where I was a physician and it was a doctor-patient role, uh, to get them to do the right thing in terms of their health care when they were in a country which had no health care. We had to get them to definitive care. So you you have to wait. I had another colleague where they had to, we had to often medically evacuate very sick people back to the United States for definitive care because they were in a place that had no resources, no hospitals, no clinic, no American or Western standard of care. And the person refused, was in their apartment. So my colleagues spent three days bartering, negotiating with the person who was very, very psychotic to get them to agree to come back with an escort family member to get help. So we, we have to be very creative and flexible in this kind of work. And negoti professional negotiators who deal with the most difficult cases need a high degree of flexibility in their work. So rigid rigid protocols and guidelines don't always work in difficult cases. Yeah, I can really I appreciate that. I think we'll make that a, a key highlight, right? Getting around the, the bureaucracy. The other question I wanted to ask you about diplomacy, you started this kind of section talking about just the complexity of these negotiations, 40 plus stakeholders in a room, those dynamics. Is that something you can talk to and, and maybe even put a, a medical a spin on it, but how do you manage those sort of dynamics when there are 40 different stakeholders, all with varying, various concerns? How do you move that sort of behemoth towards, towards some sort of solution or resolution? It's very hard because you have different agencies, different offices, different bureaus in a large government bureaucracy. 
and they all have their role. Plus, they had several lawyers in the room, so you can imagine that. <laughs> right. You have to be a good listener, and you have to you have to be attuned to the power dynamics in the room as to who the decision maker is, because that's who you really want to influence. And I was able to use my expertise, but importantly, you have to stay in your lane. If you if you get outside of your area of expertise and stretch your expertise, you're going to run into problems with that. So as the medical person in that room, I was able to sort of talk to the planners, what would we do to medically support a hostage who was being held in a place where there's no embassy nearby and no resources? It was sort of akin to what happened in, in war zones during the war on terror. Yeah, we often talk about the four P's of multi-party sort of negotiations. Those in your in your in the room like that, and saying, "Hey, what is what's our what's our purpose for being here? What's what's the product or output that we want to come out of this? Who are the people that need to be in there? Or as you're saying, like being aware of who the decision makers are, and then the final piece is like, what's the process? And I think as you talk to staying in my lane, demonstrating expertise, leveraging that expertise, it really kind of gets to those sort of concepts. Yeah, process dynamics are critical. And as a psychiatrist, one of my jobs in the State Department and my colleagues that are doing this job now do the same thing. We advise senior leadership in the State Department or in the embassies on how people are coping, adapting to these type of crisis situations, whether it's a a kidnapping, a a hostage situation, a a suicide at the embassy. These are rare events, thank God. Uh, A war political violence, a terrorist attack, a natural disaster. And we try to understand the, the human processes and psychological processes that are going on so you can mitigate the stress and help people find their own natural, what they call resilience, to, to move forward in these processes. Hey, Ken, thank you. All right, let's move into the kind of the third part. You've had such a very fascinating career. You talked about some of your leadership analysis. We talked about some of the key folks. You've done that work around that. One of those is Russian President Vladimir Putin. And obviously, can't talk about Putin today without talking about the uh, invasion of Ukraine. So do you have an assessment at this point of the kind of invasion in Ukraine, Putin's thinking? And I guess the real question that so many people have is, is there room to negotiate with Putin? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I've 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 written and spoken a lot about this, and and I've studied President Putin's career since 2000 when I read the copy of his autobiography, a series of interviews, first person when it first came out. I later read it in Russian as well, and so he's been a fascinating leader and a very he. I think what is known about him is he's, of course, he's a very ruthless leader, but he's also very tactical. He's very strategic and he's highly intelligent and he's highly patient. He was trained by the KGB. He's amazingly resilient. People, you can read in that book about his hard scrambled childhood growing up after the war in what was then Leningrad, war weary, war traumatized, if you will, parents as an only child and his sort of how he got into the system first as a KGB officer and then later as a politician his rise to power from 1991 when he quit the KGB to becoming president in 2000 was nothing short of meteoric. And as we all know, he's ruled Russia for the last 22 years. I think it's important to point out for your listeners, I haven't seen evidence that Putin has any serious 
mental health or neurological issues or medical, even medical issues that could cause him difficulty or get in the way of his uh, leadership. So I think people that there's a lot of speculation about that. And I think one has to be very cautious about speculation, especially when it comes from single source reporting in the intelligence world. The other thing is, although he's he's a very intelligent, highly intelligent, tactical and strategic leader, he made a very serious strategic miscalculation in the invasion of Ukraine. Now, he, he would probably disagree with that. In his mind, he feels he's doing what's best for Russia. But I, I beg to differ. I think he made a miscalculation. He may have got bad intelligence. That's very possible. Our, our spoon-fed intelligence, people told him what he wanted to hear. The Ukrainians would fold quickly, that Zelensky would flee. He underestimated, as did we also, the courage and heroism of President Zelensky and the Ukrainians' desire to fight for their country. So moving to your last question is, can you negotiate with Putin? And the answer is yes, but it's very difficult. To negotiate him with, with him, you certainly need, uh, you've got to humanize him and you need tactical empathy, as Gary Nessner and Chris Voss talk about. You have to put yourself in his shoes, even if you don't agree with him. And what's been very problematic in trying to set up negotiation to come to a ceasefire and begin to think about how does this war end is the name calling is not helpful. So calling him a thug or a mass murderer, or genocidal murderer, psychopath, these kind of things aren't helpful. And I think it's very important to step back from that and understand his culture and his history and where he's coming from. Is it possible? Yes. Is it difficult? Very difficult. But as Professor Graham Allison pointed out in a wonderful op-ed last week, he's the author of 13 Days about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he teaches at Harvard, is we've negotiated with other very difficult leaders uh, in our history, Mao, Stalin, Brezhnev, and others. So can the West negotiate with Vladimir Putin? Yes. And, and part of it is understanding what he wants, which is a sense of being respected on the world stage and of Russia being respected. Ken, is there also a piece to this about who is kind of leading those negotiations, whether they're back channel negotiations or who's serving as the interlocutor in this case? And is and is there does the U.S. need to take a step back? Is there somebody else? I mean, we've seen some attempts at this already. Other leaders trying to step in and, and try to mediate. Have we just not found the right person or right country to lead that mediation yet? I think there's a lot of back channel going on, which I've heard from all my sources, including people who've met with Putin. But it's it's very quiet. It's behind the scenes, and it may involve it may not necessarily involve Americans. Although I think we're very fortunate in having people that know Russia and have met with Putin, such as former Deputy Secretary of State and now CIA Director Bill Burns, who was ambassador to Moscow. President Biden's fortune having Ambassador Burns on his team as someone who, who is one of the supreme diplomatic negotiators of our generation. So I'm optimistic that with people like that involved, we'll, we'll find a way. And there are others, the Chinese, surely, the Indians, the Israelis, and West Europeans that are all trying to put out feelers to, to Putin. In order for Putin to come to the table, though, it has to be his choice 
and he has to believe that he has somehow won. And Gary Nessner and Voss, and this is a hostage negotiation in a sense where the Ukraine is held hostage by President Putin and Russia because they have 6,000 nuclear weapons. So the rules change because he has those nuclear weapons. Words really, really matter. This was highlighted in a beautiful op-ed in the late 90s, I think, by uh, or early 2000s by the State Department interpreter for Secretary of State, the late Madeleine Albright, when she went to North Korea to meet with Kim Jong-il. And um, Tong Kim is his name. He's retired now. But he wrote this piece where he talked about the, the words that they had used because President Clinton had sent a condolence letter, a personal condolence letter to Kim Jong-il after his father, Kim Il-sung, passed away in 1993. Okay. And the North Koreans were very touched by this and thanked them for it. So in these type of high stakes things, every word matters. Yeah. Oh, the, the small details, paying attention to the small, the small details there. Yes. Thanks, Ken. Now it's kind of when we kind of transition and we like to talk about successes and failures that you may have that you're willing to share for our listeners in the field of negotiations, or at least maybe it's the field of psychology. It just happens to have an application to leaders or negotiators. So would you be willing to share any successes or failures that you've had? Well, I, I think I shared a success. The forensic story is, is one like that. I think where I've had failures or where where you read about other negotiators uh, have failures is where you were in a hurry. You may have missed out on details that were important. Usually it's when we get in a hurry because we want to get, negotiators want to get to that agreement and they want what they want. And sometimes waiting is the way to go. Time is usually on the side of the negotiators. So taking more time, slowing it down. What the the great, the Nobel laureate and writer Daniel Kahneman talks about thinking fast and thinking slow. Uh, if you think fast, you may not get what you want in negotiation. You usually have to shift your mindset to a more patient and thinking slow mindset. So where, where I've run into trouble as a, as a physician, as a psychiatrist, or in when I was in the world of diplomacy, trying to persuade somebody to go on a medical evacuation was if I was pushing too hard. So I had to learn that over time. And Ken, what's the role of preparation before you get into that situation? I don't know if we've talked about that, but as you talked about you know, the tendency to get in a hurry, try to get to an agreement, it would seem that if I am prepared and I have some like you in my circle talking to me, coaching me, advising me, the quality of preparation could be that much greater. And is that something you've seen? Preparation is critical in, in complex cases, certainly in the leadership stuff I've written about and writing about negotiations with Kim Jong-un or, or Putin or Xi Jinping. You know, uh, attention to detail and preparation is really, really critical. But that's true in, in like forensic psychiatry. People tend to over-prepare. But you can have all the preparation and the facts at your hand. But if you don't tap into the other soft skills we've talked about, then the over preparation may not help you as much as you hope. And, and let me ask you this: so, as you that that's a nice kind of transition to broader application. We've talked, you know, so much in your world has been kind of the international relations field, 
and in the you know criminal criminal justice forensic world are there broader applications of the concepts we're talking about today as we think about you know business military perhaps i guess that that's an obvious one but business and personal life you see you see a, an obvious connection there that people can take away yeah i think i there are there are a lot of uh, huge applications in business and the legal worlds not only forensic the kind i did criminal forensic psychiatry but civil in civil cases criminal cases negotiations are happening all the time in the business world in the government in the military and we've talked a lot about that so i think you you see that a lot there's a there's a lot of good books on business negotiation that have been written and i i lo- i highly recommend professor michael wheeler's online course at harvard business school it's an eight week course called negotiation mastery i learned a lot about the from about negotiation complexity professor wheeler is a brilliant teacher but i learned about myself because you have negotiation simulations and most of the people my negotiating partners were from all over the world so we actually became friends you know but we we were given a, a a simulated problem that was very difficult and you learn a lot about yourself and how you deal with with ambiguity and issues where there's kind of no right answer the timing and setting is everything the late great businessman who founded international management group uh mark mccormack who wrote brilliant books about negotiation and his first book i think what you don't learn at harvard business school notes from a street smart executive it's a classic i recommend it to your listeners and there's a famous part there where he's trying to negotiate a, a deal for rolex to sponsor rolex at wimbledon and he was negotiating with the swiss and everyone knows the swiss are tough and they they have their traditions and their ways and he was a brilliant negotiator, but he wasn't getting anywhere. So he invited the CEO of Rolex to sit with him on center court of the final of Wimbledon. Hmm. And he didn't say anything. He looked around. He just let silence is very important in negotiation. McCormack didn't say anything. He let the CEO take it in. And then the CEO turned to him after several minutes and said, this is Rolex. Hmm. And he got the deal. So silence can be is very very important in negotiations as well. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Aram and I are always interested in how negotiations show up in your personal life, away from the workplace, away from with your clients. How has this showed up for you, Ken? It, it's much harder in personal life than it is in in your work because in your work you can have more emotional distance, which you need. You need enough emotion to be connected but you have enough distance where it's not personal and people don't push your buttons <laughs> right. but your best friends and your loved ones in your family they know they know you intimately well and they know and your kids they know how to push every button so it's much harder to negotiate even with the knowledge that you get from life experience or a certain type of job or courses and readings it's much more difficult and the top negotiators actually have said this i watched an interview with laurent comarbert and he said i'm a really great hostage negotiator but i have a lot of trouble negotiating with with my teenagers <laughs> so and and a psychiatrist i used to work with a child psychiatrist in in the state department uh, i had him see a family for a second opinion where i was really struggling to understand this child and i'm not a 
I saw a lot of kids, but I'm not a trained child psychiatrist. I know a lot, but he was board certified in it. And I remember his last word, he told the, the child in the family and, and at the end, the child went back to school and he talked to the parents and he goes, this is really hard. Being a parent is way harder than being a child psychiatrist. <laughs> I, I like that you said that because that's, that's very helpful and encouraging. I have six kids, Ken, so I, I, I struggle every day trying to apply the things that we teach. And the cultural aspects. Uh, I'm a child of immigrants. I grew up with foreigners, so I'm comfortable around foreigners. And I'm married to an immigrant. So I spent most of my life being the fly in the sugar bowl, the odd one out in the room. So you have to understand different cultures. I've, I've been, I've spent thousands of hours with folks where I'm the only white person in the room. So you have to be comfortable with, with different cultures, comfortable in your, in your own skin. I'll tell you a story as we wrap up. I was in Bangladesh in Dhaka and I, I forgot that the embassy was closed on Friday because that's prayer. So I had a lot of free time that morning till my flight in the afternoon back to Delhi. And, you know, I wore my jeans, took my pack, my camera, and walked around parts of old Dhaka for, for several miles, the markets, the chicken markets. I just was taking pictures and observing. And a crowd appeared, followed me, 250 people, Bangladeshis followed me. And they were very curious. I was the only white person that I saw that whole day. And one of them came up to me and said, American, American, American. And this was during the height of the war on terror. So I was kind of like, eh, what do I say? I said, yes, American. Salam Alaikum. And then he smiled. He said, oh, you Muslim. <laughs> I said, no, I'm Christian, but wassalam Alaikum. And he says, wassalam alaikum, he smiled. And then the, the crowd sort of, they, the ones that were near that heard it smiled. So it, it was a unique experience in dealing with a, a very different culture for me, where I didn't speak, I don't speak Bengali, but I, was, I had to form a connection because I'm like, what's happening here? And then a policeman came over and raised his rattan cane and everyone dispersed. <laughs> <laughs> What a, what a beautiful story. Absolutely. And, and thanks for sharing. And, and also thanks for joining us today. We're able to dig into a lot of different areas and I really appreciate it. I really appreciate sharing all the stories. This is a podcast that is all about elevating your influence through purposeful negotiation. So I'm going to turn it over to Aram here for some final takeaways from today's episode. And thank you for having me. Yeah, Ken, let me, I'll say thank you for being here. Again, we can appreciate just how busy you are, the great work you're doing. And for our listeners, you know, listen to the podcast. There's so much to take away there. As I've taken notes, you know, the some of those soft skills, the curiosity around people, the things Ken was talking about, dealing with ambiguity, cultural awareness, just the skills that persuade folks, the, the skills we need in the room when there's multiple stakeholders, the skills we need in the room when we're dealing with the Putins in our life, uh, the, the difficult people we don't want to deal with, but we need to, we know we have to. I'm just going to say the, the biggest thing, you know, and you talked about being in a hurry and the costs that can come and, and getting well prepared. The biggest thing though, that is, was one of the last things you just said, Ken, that I appreciate the most is I think, I think good negotiators need to be comfortable in their own skin. 
And that's something that sometimes we hear people talk about the need to put on some sort of theatrical performance and pretend that negotiation is something that, you know, I do, you know, in a different sort of body or something. And I think there's a real cost to that. I think we're better when we negotiate from who we are and how we naturally show up. And so being comfortable in our own skin and your story that you shared there at the end, I think just illustrates that so incredibly well, being authentic, being real, connecting with people. And that's what's going to allow us to be successful. So that is it for us on today's podcast. Definitely thank you for checking it out. Uh, we very we very much appreciate it. We're very humble. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, if you could please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. So definitely help us out. Definitely help us get this podcast in front of other leaders and other negotiators. So with that, we're going to see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.